Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You ready to go to Portugal? Yeah, NDC is coming to Porto February 26th to March 1st. We'll be there checking out the sites and recording some .NET Rocks episodes. So come and hang with us by registering at ndcporto.com. And get this, NDC is also coming to Copenhagen, March 27th through 29th at DGIBN. It's two days of workshops and a one-day conference. Go to ndcmini.com to learn more. And NDC is coming back to America. Back at the St. Paul River Center in Minneapolis, May 6th to 9th. That's the one. And they're offering early bird pricing if you register before February 15th. So go to ndcminnesota.com to register today. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Kemp. And you may have noticed there was no show on Tuesday, February 5th. It's true. And that's because we're going to one show a week until further notice. Starting in February with this show. Yep. So look for .NET Rocks in your feed every Thursday morning. We're in NDC London. We're in a bouncy, echoey room, lots of glass and hard walls. So sorry about that bathroom sound. Uh, it's not our usual sound. And a, and a view of Westminster Abbey. Yeah, we're just looking at Westminster Abbey right here. It's, we're at the Queen Elizabeth Center, and it's it's pretty exciting. It's nice to be here. Although somebody wrapped Big Ben in a big old bag. Yeah, that's right. They're, <laughs> they're fixing it up. Apparently, can, it needs some maintenance. You can still see the clock face, but yeah, that's about it. But everything else is covered up in scaffolding and yeah, plastic, plastic and stuff. It's crazy. Claire Sudbury is here. We're going to be talking to her a little bit. But first, we have this Better Know Framework thingy awesome. to do. All right, dude, what do you got? All right, well, this is from uh, a Reddit sub feed called Programming Horror. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> I, I, get, I suspect there's a theme. Yeah, there's a theme. <laughs> this is great. Uh, the, the, the topic of this uh, post is found out that our scheduler ran into errors. Here's why. And the snippet is if success, right? Throw new null pointer exception. If success. And then <laughs> when do you ever want to throw a null pointer session, much less when you succeed? And then there's two lines below it that are commented out, which is like notify user, you know, uh, log it or whatever, like the things that you normally do when the success <laughs> yes. is true, right? Yeah. So I thought that was really throw funny. A new null pointer exception. But you can waste hours on this subreddit. Um, uh, programming horror. It's well, just so much fun. It is Reddit. Yeah. That's what it does. Well, you know, there's a actually a really good service that this does for developers, which is when you do something stupid, right, and you're feeling like an idiot, I'm which is like 90% of the time. Sure. Yeah, that's just normal. That's just normal. <laughs> you can go here and find somebody who's done something dumber than you. Yeah. Well, at least I've never <laughs> thrown a null reference exception <laughs> deliberately. And checked it in, yeah. right? That's this great. is in production. No reference exception. <laughs> right. I love it. That's my laugh for the day. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, grab a comment off of show 1522, which we did back in February of 2018 uh, with Maria Nagata. Yeah. We were talking about teaching software development back then and, you know, ongoing conversation, never going to go away. Uh, and this comment comes from Rob Gardner, so about a year ago, where he said, it's easy to identify a few things that you think new programmers need to know, but it's hard to craft a program that incorporates it all together that meets the education requirements established by policy and law. Not that I know how many policies and law there is around software development, but um, well, stay with this. Uh, think about everything you know and use on a daily basis and what you expect your new programmer to know and ask yourself. How do we cram all that into them in a reasonably short amount of time? Right, right. Oh, and by the way, they also have to teach themselves how to read, write, and be great employees. That course had students writing about Turing. May have been an English course converted over to provide more focus on technology. Mm -hmm. And there's always a question about how far in the past you go and you know what are actually relevant. Right. Uh, as an exercise, you can write down Bloom's taxonomy of everything that you know you'll use on a daily basis as a programmer. Really? On a daily <laughs> basis? Okay. You should do a series on education and bring educators from a variety of types of institutions, universities, community colleges, boot camps, and industry. Discuss what challenges there are from all sides. Okay. And, this, and in some ways, I feel like we've done that. So certainly, we've talked to folks running boot camps. Like We have talked about developers being taught in a variety of different ways. Sure. 
Although I think a lot of us feel like it's still a very self-directed thing. Absolutely. I think it depends on the developer. Everybody has their own styles of learning, and therefore you have to approach it with different styles of teaching. Well, as long as we don't have a true certifying body that identifies anybody as an absolute qualified developer, there's no other meaningful metric for trying to establish education rules. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, we have the, the years of certification tests where basically it's the rote memorization. Yeah, kind the ability of stuff to pass an exam about a product. It doesn't make you no. anywhere near uh, certified as competent. Yeah, very so, different yeah. problem. But I'm sure our guests will have some great comments yeah, on this I'm one. Sure. Hey, so Rob, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if we read your comment on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And please, no nulls. <laughs> No, no. No, no. All right. Before uh, we let Claire talk, let me introduce her. Claire Sudbury is a lead consultant developer with ThoughtWorks in the UK. Maybe you've heard of them. She is an ex-high school maths teacher Uh and is on a mission to help others love their jobs as much as she loves hers. She wants to embrace learning, banish intellectual elitism, facilitate psychological safety, and celebrate diversity in all its forms. She tweets using at Claire Sudbury, that's C-L-A-R-E-S-U-D-B-E-R-Y, and she dreams in code and can never remember the name of anything. She's the last person you want on your pub quiz team. Please welcome Claire Sudbury. (laughs) But actually a professional educator. Yes. Excellent. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, for better or worse, this industry, and, and I count myself among them, a lot of professional amateurs. Yeah, I'm actually, I think that's fine. And I'm not going to say anything bad about it. It's just yeah. it's interesting reality. Yeah, us. it is. And that's directly relevant to the question that you just read out. Sure. The, the, the suggestion that, you know, about some kind of educational program, because this, this idea that you might be able to list all of the skills that a software developer needs in mm-hmm. order to do their job and come up with the, you know, one list to bind them all and yeah. then we just build an educational program and that's it done. I think that is absolute pie in the sky. Yeah. And I think that's fine because the thing is that software, the industry is the, the range of knowledge required by software developers is absolutely gigantic. Sure. There are so many different ways you can be a software developer. There are so many different ways you can be a technologist. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And there is no point in trying to list all those ways or come up with a, a list of every skill that you need. Because, in fact, every context will be different. Every team will be different. Every... Um, company will be different. And rather than list all the things you need to be a software developer, I think you'd be better off finding yourself a job and learning what you need to do that job. Right. So rather than sitting in a classroom, go and do some work. Right. And work with a team and then you will work, you'll get to know that team, you'll get to know their domain, you'll get to know their technologies and you'll get to know what you need to do to be effective in those technologies with that team. And you could move to a different team in the same company and need completely different skills. Absolutely. Mm. And and partly because they're working in a different area, but partly because they're different people. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the great things about teams is that people find ways of working together where they complement each other. Right. So you might find that you have a particular skill which is very useful in one team because you're almost the only person that has it. Mm -hmm. And then you move to another team and it's not really everybody has that skill. So some other skill that you have that's more more valuable to that team is the one that comes to the fore. Do you find that it's important in choosing that team that you're not... They're not working on something that is going to demand a skill that you don't have yet at, you know, and it has to be done Friday. Like you've got to find the right team to absorb that sort of new, you know, uh, yeah, so ramp up period that you're it, going to have. It's very dis- I actually advise that people try not to mandate what skills new team members should have. Hmm. So you can have a loose bag of skills and you want somebody who dips into that bag and pulls out some of those balls i don't know what analogy i'm still thinking of here there yeah. i've got marbles in a bag i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> it's also how you engage with the team to say how can i provide value hey here's a skill that is at a certain level of maturity that i have that looks like it might be valuable is it worth me improving that yeah. skill yeah and what you want i i mean i say this a lot and yes okay you need people who have some of the skills that you need mm-hmm. but 
don't be too prescriptive about that because what you really want is somebody with aptitude right. and attitude. Yes. You want somebody who wants to learn. You want somebody who has the ability to learn. Yeah. And yes, there are going to be people who just, you know, are never going to be able to be a software engineer. And that's fine. Mm. And they probably wouldn't have applied for their job in the first place. But you want people who are willing to learn and that you have proved that they can learn. And that's what you should care about. So I would, I've just been talking about with somebody about interviewing for software positions. And I described an interview process that somebody told me about recently where the interview is about teaching the interviewee something Mm -hmm. and seeing how they respond. Interesting. And I had a similar situation. I was interviewed for a job a few years ago where I was given a technical test. It It was on paper. I was left alone in a room. Uh, there was a lot of SQL in it. There was a lot of JavaScript. I can't remember the exact details. Uh, and then I was put into an interview with a couple of senior members of their team who went through my answers and they focused on the ones that I'd either got wrong or that I'd not been able to answer at all. Right. And they said, so, you know, what about this one? I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't actually know about that thing. And they're like, oh, great. Well, let's teach you. And they, they went up onto the whiteboard and they said, so this is how it works. And they explained it to me and they explained what the answer would have been and why right uh and i thought that's nice that was really interesting and that was the end of that bit and then another interview started with the md i think it was and he also had my technical test in front of him and he also went to the questions that i'd struggled with uh, and he got to one of the ones that i just learned about in the previous interview uh. and i said oh yes well i didn't know anything about that but your colleagues have just told me all about it and he was oh tell me more and so i i repeated what i had just learned mm-hmm. and it turned out the whole thing was deliberate it was a right. setup it, uh. they do it every time right right they find something the interviewee doesn't know via a test they teach them about it and then in the next interview they go back to it and and they see what you've learned. And, and how you explain it. And how you yes, explain it. exactly. What yeah. a great technique. Yeah. You know, my wife just had an experience like this. She got re- She's in the clothing industry, but in the technical side of clothing, how it fits and how it manufactures at scale and so forth. And she got recruited by a company recently, which she'd been free- freelancing for a while, and they had a test. And she sat down to do the test, and it was like, take, take this pattern and get it to this particular state. And within an hour or so, she looked at it and said, and basically said, I'm not going to be able to get this done in the time you've had allotted. There's the following problems. Mm-hmm. I, if I get some other tools, I might be able to take another shot at this, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be today. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. she was quite upset with herself. Yeah. Right? It's like, I was not properly prepared. And it turned out she wasn't supposed to be properly prepared. What we're really looking for is, do you know enough to know when you're not going to be able to succeed? Right. That's great. Yeah. And the fact that they, and they let her come back and do it again and actually solve it. Said so we didn't actually expect anyone to solve this. Okay. But we're appreciated that you did. Yeah. We were really looking for how long does it take for someone to admit when they, they don't ah, have full scope. That's right. really interesting. Really. Because those things are really important. They're hugely important. Yeah. When you yeah. talk about how a team actually works together, mm-hmm. someone who's able to make that assessment of this is in band, this is in spectrum, this mm-hmm. is out of band, is out mm-hmm. of spectrum. We have enough information. We don't have enough yeah. information. Yeah. Like that's going to make everybody yeah. else productive. Yeah. I had an interview dilemma recently, which mm. is I interviewed a developer for uh, AppV Next. And uh, one of the things I do is I give them something, you know, I throw something at them, a little problem that they need to work out so that I can watch their thought process and as they think through the problem. Well, this guy thought through it for about five minutes and then went to Stack Overflow. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's, but, but that's what we would do. But in that's the, the dilemma, world. right? That's so the dilemma. That's, that's fine because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is: can they can they find the right bit of Stack Overflow? Yeah. Can they pass the responses? Can they work out what's the relevant bit, and then can they apply it? I actually thought about it afterwards. Like I wanted to see them go through the algorithm in their head and okay. move it to right. code. Yeah. But that you know, but the skill is: can you get the software done? Mm-hmm. Right. right. And yeah. Going yeah. to Stack Overflow is Super what everybody credible. does. And if you can understand the algorithmic re- the, the answer that somebody is giving, and then you can tweak it and make it work in your context, right. then then you get algorithms. Yeah. So well, you don't I would need also to hope that, that they, you can develop it from scratch. That they right. really do understand what they just took from Stack Overflow. Like, there's right. all this sort of concern of you're just cut and pasting yeah. your way to yeah. a deliverable. Yeah, so then right. part of the interview would be, right, okay, let's dig into this. What yeah. have you just got? What are you going to do with it? What does it mean? Yep. Is, it, is it the right thing? If not, why not? But, but to go back to the original 
thing, which mm-hmm. is this idea that we might be able to build an educational program. Another problem with that is that there was a suggestion that there might be some kind of exam at the end. And I have to say, and this is partly from the context of having been a maths teacher, sure. I am not a fan of exams. Interesting. I don't think mm. exams are helpful. And you're talking about math. Yes. Which has empirical, accurate answers. People get that wrong. So yes, you're right. Yes, there are empirical, accurate answers. But um, people think of maths as being a thing that's all about right or wrong. Right. And from a very young age, children learn this. Maths is that subject where you either get the answers right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And when you get them wrong, it's horrible and you it's humiliating and you feel really stupid. And if you get a high enough proportion of wrong answers, you put yourself into the can't do maths box. Right. Yeah. And everybody, and unfortunately, a lot of teachers also believe in these boxes Mm -hmm. there are two Mm -hmm. boxes there's the can do maths and there's the can't do maths and people put themselves in those boxes and their teachers put them in those boxes and once you're in the can't do maths box that's it you give up and your teachers give up Mm -hmm. and it's all i'm one of the can't do maths people I'm simplifying, you know. It's, yeah, but I totally areas. get what you're... Yep. But, 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 yeah, but yeah. that's all because we're given these tests that have right and wrong answers. There is an alternative way of teaching maths, which is recognised, there's research behind it, uh, maths teachers are taught about it, but the education system doesn't allow them to practice it. Mm-hmm. So the alternative way, it does within limits, but nowhere near as much as they should. The alternative way of teaching maths is to give people opportunities to explore. There's a fantastic Mm. website called Enrich. I'll give them a shout out. It's something like enrich.org. And they uh, have these problems that allow you to explore areas of maths. So rather than telling you that the formula for the circumference of a circle is, uh, my mind has gone blank, 2 pi r, uh, and that the area is pi r squared, they give you the opportunity to discover Mm. that the ratio between Mm. the radius uh, and the circumference, or rather the diameter and the circumference is pi. Mm -hmm. That that there's this number, this magic number, that if you multiply it by the diameter, you'll always get the circumference. And it's because there is a proportional relationship between those two distances. And that's what pi is. Right. It's not just some magic number that you just stick in a formula and some people know it off by heart. That's, that's not, that's not the point. The point is that there's this magical ratio and it's kind of cool. It's very cool. And it's not difficult to discover by experiment. And if you lead children to the formula via exploration and discovery, then it's meaningful. It will stick in their heads. Because they discovered it. it. Don't just give them a big sheet of questions where they just have to know the formula off by heart and they just keep doing it over and over and over again. If they get loads of answers right, then they're clever. No, because that takes all the joy out of it. And it also encourages people to feel like failures. I saw an amazing video on YouTube when I was trying to figure out some 3D trigonometry. And trigonometry is hard enough in 2D. Mm-hmm. When you add a third dimension in there, it's... Right? <laughs> and, uh, but this video showed a three-dimensional model of stuff moving around. Um, and I can't even remember what, they, what it was, but it was this beautiful 3D graphic and you know showing the the ratios and the arrows and the triangles between these things as it was moving around in 3D and it was a visualization mm. of of the formulas and you re- instantly realize how you could apply this to anything in the mm-hmm. real world right yeah. and so th- for me learning maths and I'll say it with the plural because we are in the UK <laughs> learning maths is was uh, always about always it seemed futile to me. Mm. I, I had no idea why yeah. I was to learn this or what practical application. When am I ever going to use this, right? Yeah. This is what we think as kids because there's no context for these things. And they have these word problems which are supposed to fill in that gap. Mm-hmm. But they're usually on a test. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. you're not taught using any kind of metaphor. So, you know, I, I, my radical suggestion would be ditch exams. So, yeah. and my direct experience in the educational system is that the reason we weren't doing that exploratory teaching or very only doing it to a very small degree yeah. is because there were exams coming up. And you got to teach the We class. had to teach the kids to pass the exams. Right. Yeah. Not, we didn't have to teach the kids maths. We didn't have to teach the kids to, to appreciate the beauty of maths. Right. Well, we just had to teach them how to pass exams. And that is a completely different thing. 
Uh, and going back to the original context again, I used to work for a company that was Microsoft certified. And part of that was that um, a certain proportion of the developers had to pass NCITP exams, mm-hmm. uh, which I have now under my belt. A couple of those, I can put it on my CV. It's, I'm sorry, but it's, it's it doesn't mean anything. No, I, and, I, and I appreciate that a lot of those exams have books that are literally training you to pass the test. Exactly. There's yeah. no real emphasis on yeah. understanding the material. Yeah. Here's how you pass the test. The, the minor benefit that I got, so they were both SQL Server exams, the ones that I did, mm-hmm. and the minor be- benefit that I got is that there were certain bits of terminology around SQL that when I saw them again, I was like, oh, I used to be able to answer exam questions about this. <laughs> I, I have at least heard of it. Yes, I, I have I, once answered an exam question about this. I wouldn't be able to pass the exam if you gave me it now, but I have at least heard of it, and I did once vaguely understand it. Nice. And there's, there's, there's a little bit of an in there. I love it. But no, I learned how to pass exams. I didn't learn how to be an effective SQL Server sure. developer. Uh, and and I think that often exams are a distraction and sometimes they're actively negative. Uh, and I would far rather that people learn on the job. Ah, so I'm being shown this uh, this amazing graphic. Yeah, I found yeah. the video on YouTube and I added it to the show notes. Cute. It's really cool. Yeah. You see, that kind of thing. And there's loads of it out there. There are loads of people who are passionate about maths and who are creating resources like that. Right. And actually, you know, maths is sometimes practical and sometimes useful and, and kids need to understand why... The, it's worth learning sure. mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just beautiful mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't have to have a purpose right it's so, just amazing numbers are cool yeah. they do amazing things from a developer's perspective are we really only learning new things because that's what our job now entails like what, well, what do you see for growing developer skills so i want developers to be excited about solving problems mm-hmm. so yes i want them to learn the skills they need to solve problems and sometimes those problems will be a bit dull because they'll be working in an industry that has an output they don't actually care very much yeah, about right. um, but personally I just get a kick out of solving problems and I don't my, my, I don't care if they're abstract but that's my motivation not everybody's going to have the same motivation some sure. people are much more motivated by the very explicit end product but if you can get excited about solving problems then you will learn the skills you need to solve those problems I had a great professor in college who said that she would rather sit down with a cup of tea and a book of math problems for entertainment than watch television or you know whatever sure and I at the time I thought she was insane <laughs> but you know there there's a certain amount of fun I mean anybody who solves puzzles on their phone, you know, to pass mm-hmm. the time while they're on yeah. a plane or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You could just as easily be bringing a book of math problems and solving Exactly. Them. And that's what I do. I fundamentally just like solving problems. Yeah. And I like untangling things. And that's both literary and uh, literal and metaphorical. Mm-hmm. So I really love untangling kite strings. Really? So when my kids <laughs> really? were, used to fly kites, I would want the, oh, you know, the strings get all tangled. Sure, it lands want- in a bush and everything gets tangled. And I would be like, Yay! Now I get to untangle the string. Do you want a job as a roadie for my band? Yeah, <laughs> I'd love it. Lots of mic cables done. Tangled. Oh my god! And then I'd probably come up with like loads of solutions as well for how we can. Probably. Toilet rolls are really good. Did you know that one? Toilet rolls toilet for rolls wrapping for, for, cables, for cables. If you have a box full of toilet rolls that are sitting vertically, each uh-huh. cable goes in a toilet roll, and then it own, uh, they all have their own little compartment. Oh, they're nice. easy to see. They're easy to pull out. Ah, that's an interesting idea. That's cool. Of course, having daughters, I have spent lots of time picking apart knotted necklaces. Yes. Very fine bits of silver and gold. The chain when it, yeah. 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 There is a pleasure to that. Yeah. You know, to sort of teasing things apart. And refactoring code for me is the same thing. Interesting. So would you take um, black sesame seeds and white sesame seeds, put them in a pile together, and then separate them out with tweezers? Is that something that... <laughs> I like repetitive tasks. Mm, I like yeah. tidying and sorting. But it's really interesting because that instantly you describe it and it sounds a bit frustrating. So I don't know what my threshold is, bet- the, the, the difference between satisfying and frustrating. Well, the reason it's frustrating is because it's busy work and, you know, it's there isn't there isn't a problem to solve. There's just a job to do Mm. so it's more of like a mindfulness a meditative Mm. kind of so my my son there's these things that ikea sell you know that the swedish um furniture company and they sell these giant um bottles full of tiny 
plastic beads mm. and then they, you have these peg boards and you put the little beads on the pegs and you, the, the, the beads are different colours so you build patterns. It's almost like a kind of a tapestry or mosaic mm-hmm. and then you iron it with just an, an iron that you would iron your clothes with. The plastic melts and it becomes this this sort of this beautiful pattern mm. and that I find very satisfying and that and that might just be making a pattern where I'm, I am just making stripes or, mm. or, 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 or boxes, mm. you know, but that business of sorting out the tiny little things and getting the colours that you want and making a thing yeah. that's that's soothing and and I have, to, I have my phone is absolutely full of games that involve moving shapes around I'm building an app that purely involves moving shapes around to form a pattern I, there's something in my brain that, that the you like those tan, tangrams tangos, yeah, yeah yeah funnily enough I was I, I they did a ton of those when I was watching Netflix the other night yeah <laughs> I did both at once I watched telly and solve puzzles that's great <laughs> You, you hit me when you mentioned that sort of sorting and organizing that most refactors start as that. Mm. And then they turn in, they may evolve into something else as you sort of get into the code. Mm-hmm. Just recognizing, hey, these three things are kind of the same. Maybe they should be organized differently. Mm. Like you sort of start with fairly harmless behaviors. And it's almost like you're looking for an intuition mm. to making an improvement. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you... you- it, you, you know when code doesn't feel right. Yeah. You know when it's too tightly coupled. I mean, that's one of the obvious mm-hmm. um, use cases. You know that it's too tightly coupled. It started out seeming like a good design, but now you suddenly found yourself where it's just not good. And that's well, typically kind of, you've made more things now and you're fe- it's feeling a bit repetitive. It's feeling a bit derivative. And yeah. It's like we could organize this better. And you want, it, you want to make it more elegant. Mm-hmm. And that's really satisfying is teasing out the things that are going to make it better. Uh, and then ending up with something, I, you know, it's kind of, it's removing the busyness. Again, yeah. the, you know, the tangling analogy is really good. All of your threads are crossing each other. Yeah. And you want something that's clear and that you, that will sit in your head and you can make sense of it and mm. you won't get that kind of slightly anxious feeling of, oh, I'm not quite sure how this is. There is to work. a rush when the emergent archi- architecture shows are you suddenly reduce. I mean, I've done lots of performance tuning over the years. It's like when you, it's amazing how often I made that go faster with fewer lines of code, mm-hmm. like yeah. or, or sometimes more lines of code, but organized differently. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you sort of have a tangible measurement of that, I've made a difference. That thing of throwing things away, yeah, that's really get, cathartic. Get this, this is out fewer of my life. Fewer lines of code, fewer yeah. functions, fewer classes. Oh, I don't need that. I can throw that away now. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I so uh, an analogy for me of that experience. Like I'm a novelist, and I, I've written, I've had a couple of novels published. Oh, great! And in both cases. The amount of words I wrote was much higher than the amount that was published. Mm-hmm. I'd say probably double. Wow. You know, and there, there was, um, so, you know, both novels were around about 100,000 words when they were published. I probably wrote about 200,000 words for wow. each one. And my favorite bit was the bit where I threw words away. <laughs> and at first, when you're a novice, that's painful and you don't like it and you right. love all of your words. And there's, there's a quote I can't remember who from, which is kill your babies. Right. Uh, and <laughs> It's the kill your darlings, kill your yes. darlings. Okay. And it, the, those passages that are your favorite passages of prose, that paragraph that you sculpted and was your favorite is probably the one you should throw away <laughs> because it's probably overwritten. Yeah. It's probably only appreciated by you. Yeah. And yeah. it's when you can finally acknowledge that and start throwing those things away and see the clean structure that emerges as a result, that's mm. very similar to reflection. But it does feel like you sort of have to get to the end to be really sure you know the full dimensions of any given problem and then you can go say through and see what parts are redundant yes yes and one of the so again the analogy with novel writing what i say to people when they're writing people find it very hard to write i found it very hard to write and they find it very hard to start so this thing of writer's yeah. block sure. you know that you know and you know, people who write blog posts will recognize this mm-hmm. you know that you want to write it but you can't get yourself to start and i think that a big part of that is fear of failure mm-hmm. so we're into a slightly different area now but it's, it's interesting anyway so you think that you're going to write something that's going to be rubbish everybody's going to hate it and so mm. you so you don't even start because you, you're already scared of, of the end point. Right. And also you're scared that whatever you write is just going to be terrible. And then you write something and it is terrible. And you look at it instantly and, and you instantly criticize it. The problem, the reason that happens is because you've allowed your inner critic to come in too early in the process. Sure. Yeah. What you need to do is throw words on the page, accept that they will be rubbish and that is okay. Yeah. Right. And that's a bit like your first te- your first bit of code that makes your test pass. Right. It's fine if it's rubbish. 
because you're going to refactor it. Mm-hmm. It can be terrible. It can be really bad code that you would be mortified for anybody to it see. It could be thrown null reference exception. Yes, exactly. Maybe that's too far. Yeah. I mean, it might be a little too far. Yeah, maybe not. But yeah, but like, so, and, and I describe that's your first draft. So if you're writing, that's your first draft. And I describe that, then I draw an analogy with being a sculptor. Mm-hmm. That's your hunk of rock. Mm. That that's that's ugly. It's yeah. it's it's, it it's raw material. Right now, what you're going to do is craft it and hone it and chip bits off it and make it a beautiful shape. And it doesn't matter if it's rubbish. Everybody's first draft is rubbish. It's supposed sure. to be rubbish. Right. Your inner critic needs to be told to go away in yeah. no uncertain not terms. They are not helpful at, at that point. The first draft point. Then get the critic in. Then say, okay, this is rubbish. Why is it rubbish? What can I do to make it better? Absolutely. And guys, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. So we're at one show per week until further notice. I'm sure that's a relief for some of you, but uh, for others, that's just not enough. Well, the only way we can get back to two shows a week is if we significantly increase our Patreon pledges. So think about becoming a .NET Rocks patron, like Adrian Pell. Thanks, Adrian. Make a pledge today at patreon.netrocks.com. And thanks. All right, it's .NET Rocks. We're back. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Rich Campbell. And that's Claire Sudbury. And we're talking about teaching, learning, uh, fun things we like to do, fun things that tickle our brain. And uh, we got off on this on this tangent, and, and it's a great one. We can still go there or if you've got something else that you want to talk about. We'll just pick it up. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose what we haven't talked about, which is something that I get very passionate about, is um, what I call... So I, I have now created this thing that I call the Stupidity Manifesto. I've been writing be, that my whole see, life. See, it might not be what you think. So my call to action is let's stop making each other feel stupid. Yeah. It's not, let's not, it's not, it's very much not, it's explicitly not, let's stop being stupid. Because mm. actually we're all stupid and that's fine. And if you don't feel stupid as a programmer, you're not working hard enough, really. Yeah. And, and we all feel stupid and we all have these insecurities and we're all waiting for the next time that somebody makes us feel stupid or tells, right. tells us that something we've done is stupid. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. all anticipating those times. And the reason we're anticipating them is because we just see them happen all, all around us. Sure. And I think that this industry is really bad for being very judgmental and critical of our peers. So for instance, the example I give is I've many, many, many times had a colleague come back from interviewing somebody. Luckily, not at ThoughtWorks, actually, because we have a really good attitude to interviewing, but other places I've worked. They come back from having interviewed somebody and they say, can you believe I've just interviewed this developer and they didn't know about X? Right. <laughs> and, like, and we're all supposed to, you know, raise oh, our eyebrows and go, oh, my what God, is, What really? is the younger generation come to? Right, and, yeah. and you know what? That person, yes, okay, it does happen that sometimes people go for job interviews when they just do not have the skills that they need to have. Sure. And sometimes yeah. they've lied on their CVs, mm-hmm. and sometimes that gets exposed in an interview. But much more likely is that somebody has got to that point in their profession without ever needing to know about X. Right. Or maybe they once knew it and they forgot it. Yeah, but maybe you asked the question the wrong way. They're in the room and they don't know it. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, if they need to know it, what you want to know is can they learn it? Sure. Uh, if somebody on your team, because this is the other thing, is people judge uh, their, their colleagues, are not just people who haven't joined the company, people who are already in the company, which is worse. Yeah. They say, you know what, my colleague doesn't know X. Now let's all have a good laugh and let's click our tongues and say, oh, God, aren't they awful? No. Let's say, you know what, they don't know X for whatever reason. It doesn't matter. The fact is they don't know it. If they need to know it, we need to do something about it. And the worst thing to do is to laugh at them or criticize them, not just because it doesn't help them to learn the thing we need them to know, and the whole team needs them to know that thing, but also because all of the other people who are listening to you who are in the room, and okay, so you say the person I'm saying this about, they're not in the room, they don't know, but everybody who's in the room is thinking, oh, are they saying those things about me too? Sure. Right. When did they say? Have they been? Is, are they saying that? Well, Will they you, say that? What do you, I need to do to make just, sure they don't you're, you're say never, that? You're never going to say I don't know now. Yeah, exactly. So now just, I'm not going to admit when I don't know stuff. Sure. It's just golden rule life lessons for me. I mean, it, it, this is the things that I had to teach my kids. Right? When you smack talk about somebody to somebody else, you're basically telling them, "Hey." I'm going to smack talk about you too. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. let's find out what I can smack talk about you. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you you just yeah. don't make yeah. 
friends that way. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> imposter syndrome is a big problem in this industry. Sure. I mean, everybody has all of these masses of insecurities and paranoias. Mm. Everybody's worried that they don't know enough stuff, that their colleagues think that they don't know enough stuff, that they're going to get found out for not knowing enough stuff. Right. And and it's not surprising because we are in this industry where everything changes constantly, mm-hmm. where no one person can know everything. No. Where you can have two or three or four or God knows how many people who are all highly experienced and capable with encyclopedic knowledge and yet they there is no crossover. Right, right. They do not know the things that each other knows. And they're all successful and productive anyway. Yes, mm. exactly. You just you can't know everything, but you will have to learn stuff. You cannot do this job mm-hmm. without learning new things all the time because everything changes. So even if you've learned the thing, it will change or it will be replaced by another thing. So if you're not able to acknowledge and admit and be open about not knowing stuff, then you are crippled. Where uh, where does the onus lie between the developer teaching themselves and the organization being responsible for the developer being able to learn? I, it should be a partnership. Mm-hmm. So it, it and and it, it can't be a partnership unless everybody's being open and honest and feels safe about what they yeah. know or don't know. Yeah. So the the, the 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 company needs to be honest with the developer. The developer needs to be honest with the company. Both parties need to be able to say what do we need to do to get this person to where they need to be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, from simplest level, from a company perspective, do I just make sure I have a budget per person that they can? spend however they wish to expand their education as necessary? If that was the only thing you do, did, you would fail. Okay. So, yes. Like not, you need to do that, but you also... You need to do that, but you, you can't just say, I've done that, therefore problem solved. Right. Mm. Uh, and, I, and to be honest, that is... Uh, Quite low down on you know, the list. I mean, I've I seen think. a lot of organizations where this is what they've done and said, but they don't spend it. Yeah. And, but, and it also it depends what you mean by budget. Because if you say that what I'm going to do is I'm going to give each developer X number of pounds, dollars, whatever, sure. to spend. It's going to be a few thousand dollars a year, enough for a trip to a conference. Or- yeah. Well, that's no use if they don't have the opportunity to spend it. Yeah. If you mm-hmm. kept them so busy with project work that Can't they don't take have the time. You know, yeah. that, that's no use at all. If you say, I'm going to build Slack into my system mm. so that I know that my developers will have time and space to do this mm-hmm. stuff. If you say, I really value this in the same way, it's just as important to value learning as it is to value fixing tech debt. Sure. And that requires budget because that requires a commitment that I am not going to fill my developers every waking hour with, with fixing the next problem. Or new features. Yeah. yeah. I, I, if, my, if my only significant metric is new features, there's yeah. no time for tech debt. There's no time for learning. Like yeah. none of those things yeah. happen. So that's important. That mm-hmm. attitude of building time in, building space in. But the other thing that's really, really important is culture. Mm-hmm. So where you celebrate learning, you encourage learning, sure. you encourage everybody to ask and answer questions all the time, where nobody gets laughed at for not knowing something, sure. where people get excited when people don't know stuff. Right. There's You, you can Google it. I, I don't have the number of it. I, could, I should probably find it. There's an XKCD cartoon. Okay. Um, which is called The Lucky 10,000, I think. Okay. I don't know if you've come across it. I, that, it was a slide in the talk that I've just done, which is why I do actually have it on my phone because I've got the slide deck here. Um, but it's uh, it, what he says is for um, for everything that you think everybody should know. And he uses the example of the Diet Coke and Mentos thing. Right. Do you know oh, that thing? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so yeah. that's the thing where you put a Mento in a bottle of Diet Coke and right. it shoots out the top and it makes yeah. this amazing fountain. So he, he, he says that might be an example of a thing that you think everybody knows. Right. And maybe they do. Let's and his his postulation is this whatever this thing is, that by the time everybody is thirty, they know it. Right. Uh but that means that at some point between zero and thirty they have to learn it. There right. is going to be a point when they didn't know it, and right. then there's going to be a point when they do know it. And then he does some maths based on the population of America and the fact that he's saying that everybody will know it by the time that they're thirty and what the birth rate is, and he decides that therefore every day there are ten thousand people who are learning the Diet Coke and Mentos thing. Right, right, right. Now what he says is <laughs> if you're default attitude is that I laugh at people who don't know stuff that I think they should know, then you're training them not to tell you when they don't know it. Sure, of course. And that means that you miss the moment. You don't get to see them learn it. Right. You don't get to be the one that teaches them about the Diet Coke and Mentos We, we were looking for excuse to buy more Diet joy. Coke and Mentos. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see the joy on their faces. Yeah. And, like, right. and that, that expands out to the, the, the whole area of learning, you know, I think a big mentor for me in teaching is John Skeet. 
John Skeet, if you ever have the pleasure of meeting him, and you have this conversation, and he will say, oh, do you know about such and such? And you say, no. He'll go, he'll get so excited. He'll be, oh, my God, you have to see this. Yeah. I'm looking at the lucky 10,000 right here. It's, he, he, he very handily numbers all his cartoons, so it's yeah. number 1053. <laughs> We've had Randall on the show. Yeah. Miss him terribly. Love to have him back oh, anytime. I'd love to meet him. He's a wonderful, yeah. really, really wonderful guy. Yeah. And, and, and those, all of them are brilliant. Like so many are just astonishingly good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see if we can do this. Do you know about Little Bobby Tables? No. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, Little Bobby Tables. Yes. Oh, is this the one about the mum, <laughs> the sequel mum? Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I, I was hoping you didn't so oh, that I sorry. could tell you about it. I, it, was, it was actually a slide in one of my talks. And, <laughs> oh, and the reason great. I loved it so much was because I'm a, not only a woman in tech, I'm a mother in tech. Nice. Yeah. And the, the message behind that, yeah. that this, this guy's mum could do sequel queries, could <laughs> yeah. do sequel injection, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, there, there is, a, and funnily enough, it was actually in the talk this morning, and it's really interesting. I noticed it. And I'm not criticizing anybody because it, it, I've done it too. Yeah. But we all criticize our mums for not knowing about tech. And we all have little stories that we can tell about our mums doing stupid things related to tech. Mm. And we don't have those stories about our dads. And mm. actually, a lot of our dads are in exactly the same position because they're the same generation. Mm-hmm. But it's funnier when you tell the story about a mum. And there's this trope that the, the, the mum who can't do tech and it's feeding into this idea of the woman who can't yeah. do tech. Mm. And so that I don't like it. I, I get why people do it because those stories are funny and I have them about my own mum. Right. You know, but, and there are also reasons why women more than men actually are more likely to have been a bit phobic of tech, you know, because of all of the prejudice. And I don't know, but everybody's got that grandfather who used to stand in front of the microwave going come on (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah yeah who hasn't sanitized their inputs today Uh, I guess I got to think we the other aspects are sort of embracing the diversity of learning you know we were just talking about how podcasting is not a big part of, of your learning mechanism I struggle listening to podcasts just because being in the business, I only ever hear mistakes in them. Mm. But my preferred learning mechanism is reading. Yes. Like I'm a good reader. I enjoy reading. Everything's on my Kindle. I read constantly. Yeah. Like people wonder how I know stuff. I read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. I, so I, I actually, so yeah, we did have this conversation that I haven't listened to this podcast before, which mm-hmm. I'm very sorry about. And it's not, it's nothing to do with this podcast. I don't listen to podcasts. And the mm-hmm. reason I don't is because I struggle to fit them into my day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a, you know, there have been times on planes, things like that, where I have listened to them and I thought, Oh, why don't I listen to podcasts? This is great. But I just haven't found a way of fitting it into my routine. Sure. Mm-hmm. In terms of learning, um, one of my, the, one of the things that that constantly annoys me is when I Google something, because I do all the time, you mm-hmm. know, I want to find how to do something. So I Google it and I found, I see a link in the search results. I think, yes, that's what I want. And I click on it and it's a video. And I'm like, oh no, really? Right, You're yeah. going to make me watch a video and I'm not going to know which bit of this video holds the bit that I actually care about. Right, I'm going to yep. have to sit through a load of stuff that I don't care about. I'm going to get really impatient really quickly. You're going to learn how text. to subscribe to that guy's video. <laughs> Feed, that lady's video feed. I want text that I can search. And yeah. actually there is, you know, there is technology now. It's getting easier to search video for what mm-hmm. for content. But right. generally I just want text that I can search. Yeah. So yeah. And but even better, I want a person that I can ask questions. Mm-hmm. My my preferred way of learning is to have a person next to me. Mm. So that's why I love pairing as so well. And the mentor you know? model. Yeah, yeah. And and pairing is fantastic. So actually I'm gonna give them a call out. So I'm currently working with a, a thought worker called um Joe Ray, and he's fantastic. And he's I'm an, I'm I'm being an infrastructure engineer at the moment. This oh, is wow. the first time I've nice. ever been an infrastructure engineer. It's very exciting. And Joe has been he's such a brilliant patient teacher, you know. So we're pairing together yeah. uh and you know, we're being productive but he's encouraging me to have my hands on the keyboard he's not just telling me stuff he's nudging me in the right direction Mm -hmm. uh but he's there right next to me at my elbow so when i get stuck i'm like okay joe what do i do now or you know what does this mean or why is this doing this and and it's you know to have a person there who can who has those answers it's really really i like that yeah it's a good way to learn and it's I, I think it's also really powerful for the mentor to see how other people see those steps. Mm-hmm. Like what these things are often harder than you, they needed to be. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you have fresh eyes looking at them that you yeah. get a sense of, wow, there gotta be a better way to do that. Yes. Yeah. Um, for, for young kids, have you seen gamifying learning? 
work well, um, or is yeah, that a pipe dream? No, I, I think it does work, and I think tools like Scratch. I'm guessing you've come across Scratch. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not exactly gamifying in the sense that you know you're not always winning a game in order to learn the next thing. Right. But it's in the context of play. You can create games. Yeah. It's 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 accessible. It's easy. It feels like a game. Mm. Um. I. I. Yeah. I don't think you have to gamify everything. But yes. It there is a certain helps. idea, though, that if you like, if you put everything that your kids would learn at school on Facebook yeah. and give them challenges, <laughs> they'd probably yeah. work a lot harder. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, so like my, my son loves to play two zero four eight four eight. You know, I don't know if you know it. It's a game where you combine no. twos and you get powers of two. Oh. Uh, and you're ultimately aiming for two zero zero four eight. Uh, and apparently, they're allowed to play this at school because it's educational because it's powers of two. Oh, okay. But they really enjoy it. You know, and, and games like that that just. One of the things that I found really interesting when my children were growing up was that a lot of their literacy skills were improved by gaming Mm. because they were reading instructions on the screen. You know, there was a lot of stuff that required them to read. Right. Uh, There was a lot of text on the screen uh, and they had to be able to... And and then they were playing multiplayer games where they were chatting and they Mm. had to be able to type. Uh, and they had to be able to communicate via text. Mm. Uh, and that actually did help. Their, and yeah, okay, there's text speak and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, being comfortable with the written word yeah. is actually that, that, that contributed to that. And, uh, I think sometimes people try to create too much of a dichotomy between learning, playing. They yeah. should, they should, learning should be play. Yeah. It should be playful. It should feel like fun. Uh, you know, I, my career completely changed when I celebrated learning and embraced it. Mm. Uh, and I think I was very lucky that I, my, that my, I, you know, I was going to say that my career has followed an unusual path, probably not that unusual for a woman, in fact. Um, should be more usual. It's to do with parenthood. So actually it should mm-hmm. be true of men as well as women because, you know, it should be, there should be more opportunities Both for men parents, to, yeah. to yeah. take parental leave and all the rest of it, which right. is getting some better in some areas. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a big gap. Uh, there was a four year gap. Actually, it wasn't just about me having babies. There were also, I'd just got sick of the industry. Mm. And that was when I retrained as a high school maths teacher. So the teacher was actually in between two stints of being a software developer. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was actually a complete disaster. <laughs> being went, a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. It went really, really badly. So I, I just, uh, so I am, um, so I, I, I really hate this idea that women are good at multitasking because I'm totally not. Interesting. Uh, I'm very good at focusing on one thing. Very, mm-hmm. very very good so you can say my name and I won't hear you because I'm focusing on one thing right but in a classroom there are 30 things and they're people yes and, <laughs> and they're all going in different directions they're all time. going in different directions they all need your attention and what right. I would tend to do to cope with the stress of that is I would just focus on one of them right <laughs> just like the rest of them at the end of one of my lessons another teacher came into the room looked up and said, Claire, that wasn't their last lesson because they'd been in the classroom. Like, what? What wasn't there? And the ceiling, there were polystyrene ceiling tiles. Right. And the ceiling looked like an upside down porcupine. <laughs> and what the kids in my class had been doing is using their ballpoint pens as like pea shooters. So they were, they were blowing. Right. So the middle of the pen comes out like a dart. Right. And sticks in the ceiling tile. <laughs> and they'd all been doing it. There were dozens of these things. And I had been completely oblivious. I had wow. not even noticed uh anyway what was my point yes sorry so um after having had this disastrous experience as a teacher i wasn't qualified to do anything else i had to come back into the industry i hadn't been planning to i'd been Mm. four years away i didn't think i was ever going to be a software developer again Mm -hmm. but but uh, not only was it the only thing i was qualified to do but i also had something to prove at this point sure because i felt like a failure and I needed to succeed at something. So, uh, and but I now did you've it. had several years away. Like you need to catch your own skills need, up. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I didn't feel I hadn't deliberately kept up. I didn't think I was coming back. I right. hadn't paid any attention to what was happening in the industry. I'd already my skills had already been stagnating at the place that I'd left, which was past, partly why I'd lost interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I'd got used to a lower salary as a teacher. So I came back into a company at entry level. Right. And this was the one where they, they mandated that everybody should ask questions. Mm-hmm. And it was the same one where they did the thing in the interview where they taught you something and then checked to see if you'd learned it. Mm. Uh, and they, what they did was they specialized in taking on grants and training them. And there was a really, really high focus on training and learning. It, it, and it was fantastic because I was like, 
I'm an empty vessel, you know, fill me up, teach mm-hmm. me stuff. I'm starting again from scratch. And this time my attitude was different. So previously I had just seen it as a job. It was just what paid the bills. This time I was like, you know what? I actually do find this stuff exciting. And instead of beating myself up for that, I'm going to just go for it. Mm. So I went to all the events. I I went to conferences. It Mm. became my hobby as well as my job. Mm -hmm. And I found it exciting. And I was learning something and I was putting it to good use and I was able to succeed at it. Mm. And I've never, that, that has been really important to me ever since. This celebrate learning, get excited about learning, give people opportunities to be excited excited about right. what they can do with tech did your education as a teacher help you in in your work after that yeah yeah in two ways because it i had a better understanding of how to learn mm-hmm. because i've been teaching i had a better understanding that i wanted to learn because when i was in that classroom i was really jealous of those kids mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and it also helped me to um teach and mentor my colleagues so that has become a big part of my career now sure. that, I, that i teach that I, i'm still a software developer but I, you know i'm a technical lead so i'm mentoring other developers and i i very much enjoy that part of my job and i deliberately kind of enhance make that a be a part of my career and mm. i mean you were educated in teaching children teaching adults is it that different it's it's different yes it's different you know what the major difference is mm-hmm. uh so I, okay this is slightly different but I, I when i talk at conferences i always say you know people say well you know is it a bit kind of doesn't make you nervous it's like what are you kidding me i get to stand for an hour in front of an audience of adults who listen to what i say don't swear at me don't throw things at me don't mm-hmm. climb on the tables mm-hmm. Uh, they're generally pretty respectful sure. and they're interested in yeah. what I'm saying. And I only have to do it for one hour and then I get to go away. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> as a teacher, I had to do that five times a day right. in front of a hostile audience. Five days a week. That didn't want to be there. Yeah. That would swear at me, that mm-hmm. would throw things around the classroom, you know. So, yeah, the big difference between kids and adults is that, yeah, unfortunately, you know, in the state schooling system, you you often have unwilling pupils. And that doesn't have to be true of children. But, no, yeah. but, know, but it can be. I've certainly found it's a tougher gig to go into a, a high school mm-hmm. than it ever is to go to a conference like this yeah, yeah. where you have people who who fought for budget to mm-hmm. be here like yeah. they're highly motivated learners mm-hmm. but if you could light up a group of high schoolers like you swung the weighted bat that's a hard yeah. gig if you can yeah. just get them to stop talking yes. <laughs> or yeah. off their phones yeah yeah and just engage for a moment uh-huh. you've done something yeah yeah but it is it is absolutely challenging i had a a great a uh, middle school English teacher, I'll call him out by name. His name was Terry Purcell. He's, he, he passed, but he was a legend in the middle school for how he humiliated students when they acted up. You know, everybody knew about it. Mm-hmm. Like the stories were epic. Yeah. So he had a, um, a poster of a monkey on the wall and having to talk to the monkey was perhaps the most embarrassing of all things. He'd make you stand up, say, hello, monkey, how are you? Like, you know, in front of the class. And if if one person in the class did something mean to another, he'd make you stand in front of them, jump up and down three times and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, at the top of your lungs, like this kind of thing. You see, that's really interesting. And it's a great story. And I actually am not happy with the idea of using humiliation as a motivation tool. Right. Uh, But it's really interesting as a teacher that one of the things that you quickly learn and you are taught is that if you stamp on the tiny things, mm. then the kids don't get an opportunity to do the big things. Yeah. So the, the most common example in British schools at the moment uh, is there's a very strong trend to absolutely stamp on any deviation from the official uniform. Right. So uh, no earrings, no makeup, everything yeah. tucked in and neat and tidy, you know, blazers done up, everything everything exactly right. Right. Blazers always on, no matter what the weather's like. Right. Uh, and this is actually a slow form of torture for children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, but wait, don't you also encourage them to express themselves too? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And children who express themselves are just the dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it's just the hazard. <laughs> Get out of here, kid, you bother me. <laughs> and the thing is that as a human being, you're yeah. like, I don't like this. Yeah. I don't like the way I'm treating these other human beings. But you can see that it works. Mm-hmm. And anything that will work, anything that will get them to shut up and do the work, 
that and and you you see this thing happening where mm. you're becoming this just terrible person mm. all in the name of getting them to shut up and pass an exam and it's just mm. but it is really hard and there are a lot of problems it is there are no simple answers no yeah. if it was easy we'd be doing it yeah right so what's next for you what's on your radar what's in your inbox so uh yeah the big thing that i'm currently paying a lot of attention to is um uh, it's refactoring. I'm really interested in refactoring mm-hmm. and, the, the, you know, the detail of how you do that. So um, Martin Fowler's just published the second edition or the reworking of his uh, his original refactoring book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we've got a study group at ThoughtWorks where we're kind of going through that. But I'm hoping, I'm putting together some content which is hopefully going to go up on Martin's site mm-hmm. um, with some concrete examples of refactorings. And that's coming out of the fact that I've got two personal projects on the go. One is that I'm writing a piece of accounting software um, purely for my own benefit. It, okay. it wouldn't work for anybody else. It, it's, it's not generalizable. I am, it's, it's a way of making the amount of time that I spend on accounting, personal accounting, less. Okay. It's also a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. So, you know, right. I'm just really enjoying writing the code and I, you know, and I enjoying doing it properly. It's, it's test driven and, uh, mm. and it's, you know, it's, it's my little code base and I kind of love it. Nice. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, consciously paying attention to the refactorings that I'm doing and thinking how these, these can become blog posts and I can use these as teaching and, you know, teaching examples for other people. Right. Um, and also kind of on a similar tip, I've got another piece of software, which is a puzzle app. So it's an iPhone app and it is the kind of puzzle game that I love to play. Right. So I've designed my own puzzle game and that's really, so I'll be talking about that actually. Yes. Yeah, so that's the next thing that's coming up is I'll be speaking. I don't know when this will go out. It might be too late. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, so it might not go out in time. I'm speaking at ETC, which is European Testing Conf in mm-hmm. Valencia, which is the 13th to the 15th of February, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be talking there about um, TDD and pairing, TDD as in test-driven development, and specifically in the context of this puzzle app, which originally, actually very originally, Luce and I, who is in the room here, my, mm-hmm. my wonderful mentee Luce, uh, originally Luce and I paired on it, and then we realized that it did, wasn't really fulfilling the purpose we originally intended as a mentee-mentor relationship. So then it became my project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, and it just became this fun thing that I was doing. But there was a big problem, which was that I was the user. Right. I was playing the game, and I was enjoying playing the game, yeah. and I wanted new features, and I wanted them now. Right. <laughs> and then the other big problem was that this is not, I'm not paid, this is just a hobby. So yeah. I, I'm not doing it during working hours, which means that I'm doing it late at night, I'm doing sure. it at the weekends, I'm coding at three o'clock in the morning, yeah. and I just want to go to bed, so I'm cutting corners. I started more and more and more writing code without tests, and then it got harder and harder to refactor because I didn't have any tests. Coverage. 3 a.m. code is never a good idea. (laughs) Worse and worse and worse. But I wanted more features and I wanted it to do and I wanted a better game. You were the bad PM to yourself, the programmer. Yes, I really was. I was a terrible, terrible PM. I was the worst boss in the world. And, uh, Are you going to release this game on the on the sh- on the store yeah, so people can yeah, play? Eventually. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's already out there in beta, but um, but but yeah, hopefully, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I love um, it. but anyway, so I realized what, what a very very naughty programmer I was being, and it wasn't I wasn't gaining anything. It was from all it, your PM say, pushing was, you unnecessarily. <laughs> it was getting impossible to refactor. I was it's harder and harder to make progress. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, all that and, technical debt was accumulated. The PM yeah, wasn't hearing anything about yeah, it, so exactly. I got no time for that. New features. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, what can I do? Uh, and I thought, well, why? First of all, why aren't I pairing on this? Mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So then I thought, okay, so who could I ask to pair with it, uh, me on this? And uh, and I don't know if you're aware of a wonderful woman called Sal Freudenberg who speaks a lot about neurodiversity at conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's a friend of mine, and she and I had already done some pairing because she was an uh, ex-programmer, originally a small talk programmer, mm. who had sort of drifted away from programming and become an agile coach, but was missing coding sure. and wanted to get back into it. So she did this thing which she called a coding tour where she went all over the country uh, and coded with people that she's met at conferences, people mm-hmm. that she knows. And I was one of them. And she came to ThoughtWorks. And we spent a couple of days pairing on some React.js stuff. 
Uh, and, and then that was that. But we just had such a fantastic time. And when I thought about who can I get to pair with me on my game, I thought, Sal, that would be perfect. Sure. So Sal and I, what we now do is, uh, late at night after the kids have gone to bed, we get on Zoom. She lives in, no, I always get this wrong. She doesn't live in Cornwall. I don't know why I think she does. She lives in Somerset, but it's another part of the UK. It's quite a long way away from Manchester, which mm. is where I am. Uh, so we, we do remote, um, pairing. We get on Zoom. Quite often our kids pop up in the background because they're supposed to have gone to bed and they haven't, or <laughs> right. haven't quite done bedtime yet. Uh, and, and we pair. And, and you know, that's been... So I've been able to gradually pull the code base back into line again. Her kids love playing the game. Her kids are full of ideas for it. Awesome. They spot bugs. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's been a really great part. We both really enjoy it. That sounds you know. so much fun. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, uh, Claire Sudbury, thank you for spending this time with us. It's been an, a delightful conversation. Thank you. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.